We are in a series in 1 John, but I'm deviating from that. I just feel compelled to break into the series. Since we have a guest next Sunday, we'll resume it the Sunday after, the first Sunday of March. Uh, Weather's been on my mind. (laughs) And I thought to myself, I've never heard a message on weather. So I said, well, I can't wait for someone else to do it. I'll do it. So uh, here it is. The general commander of the Union armies during the Civil War was Ulysses S. Grant. After President Lincoln, probably more than anyone else, he should be credited for the North defeating the South. Most people aren't aware that on February 8, 1870, then-President Ulysses S. Grant created a National Weather Warning Service. In 1890, that weather warning service was renamed the United States Weather Bureau. We now know that branch of government as the National Weather Service. Most adults consult that weather service sometimes multiple times per day. It's interesting that older people are much more weather conscious than our emerging generations. Some teenagers seem oblivious to unfortunate weather and would run around outside in shorts and t-shirt in a blizzard if permitted to. Never understood that. Uh, That'll change as someone ages. Weather affects us all. And if we we have had inclement weather this winter, Long-time residents here have admitted that this has been most unusual weather. The abnormal amount of snow and sustained freezing temperatures, I am told, is not season, a seasonal norm. I'm not using the word weather in a metaphorical sense, as in so- someone's personal storms. I'm using the word weather in an actual, literal sense. Weather such as sunshine rainfall, freezing temperatures, hurricanes, heat waves, tsunamis, and on and on. The word inclement um, means severe, catastrophic weather conditions. And what we have experienced this winter here is nothing compared to recent storms in the Northeast. This past month on Mount Washington in New Hampshire, Because of a blast of Arctic air, the wind chill temperature, remember wind chill is a combination of the wind and temperature, the wind chill temperature reached a minus 108 degrees. It is supposedly the coldest temperature ever recorded on earth. I remember in Kansas City one night, I've mentioned before, Hopi and I were raised in Kansas City, and if you aren't aware, Kansas City has a football team. And um, they, uh, they, they played a game last Sunday and, uh, and did, did pretty good. You can read about it. Um, I remember one night going outside to get a feel of a wind chill factor of minus 57 degrees. I lasted about 10 seconds. It was cold. I cannot imagine a minus 108 degrees. The weather has inconvenienced us here, but fortunately we haven't been able to, haven't been forced to survive something that extreme as we just described. This morning we're addressing the subject of weather, not climate change per se, that's another sermon. Uh, 
but we're addressing actual weather from a biblical perspective. Three statements. The first is God is in ultimate control of the weather. God is in ultimate control of the weather. At creation, God established certain laws that govern nature, such as the law of gravitation. And Sir Isaac Newton's laws of nature, also called the laws of motion, and, and more. The problem is that sin has negatively affected nature. Sin, man's sin, has negatively affected nature. The creation account is found in Genesis 1. There are two perspectives on the subject of origins. Origins meaning how all that exists now originated. Um, there are secular evolutionists and there are biblical creationists. So those are the categories, evolutionist and creationist. Then creationists fall into two separate categories. First are young earth creationists, abbreviated YEC. Young earth creationists interpret the Genesis text, meaning the Genesis account of creation, in a literal sense and argue that God created the earth and all that there is in six literal 24-hour days. That's the approach from a young earth creationist. And that means that the earth is from 6,000 to 10,000 years of age. Ken Ham's um, organization, Answers in Genesis, and the Creation Museum um, are both young earth creationist organizations. The Ark Encounter uh, is based on a young earth creationist model, and on and on and on. Second, there are old earth creationists, abbreviated OEC. Old earth creationists interpret the Genesis text in a figurative, non-literal sense and argue that the Genesis creation days represent ages. Those days mentioned there represent elongated periods of time, ages, so that the earth is about 4.5 billion years of age. So those are the categories of creationists, uh, a young earth and an old earth. I am a young earth creationist um, for a number of reasons we don't have time to get into. So I would argue that God created all that there is in six literal 24-hour days and that God created weather on the second creation day. Notice Genesis 1. Verse 6, <clears throat> then God said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. That's an interesting phrase. Um, verse 7, thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament and the, from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so. Verse 8, and God called the firmament heaven. Remember, there are multiple heavens mentioned in Scripture. So the evening and morning were the second day. In the New King James translation, the word firmament is mentioned nine times in Genesis chapter 1. Um, instead of firmament, some translations read space or expanse. Essentially the same thing. We would define firmament as the atmosphere around the earth. That constitutes the first heaven. 
from a biblical perspective. The first heaven is the atmosphere around the earth. That's the firmament. The firmament is what we see if we're outside and just look up. The waters above the firmament, because the firmament separated the waters on the earth from the waters above the firmament. The waters above the firmament, uh, theologians believe, described a water vapor canopy that uh, God created and created an even temperature across the globe, more of a tropical environment. Uh, But then that water vapor canopy collapsed during the Genesis flood. And so that water vapor canopy is no longer there. Uh, But that was a collapse of a massive amount of water uh, that was an addition to the total precipitation that covered the earth during the flood. So weather occurs in the firmament or atmosphere above us, um, that's where weather happens. And notice verse 10 comments on that second creation day, because in creating the firmament or the atmosphere, God created weather. And on the second day, after he had concluded his time creating, it reads, and God saw that it was good. So the atmosphere was created as a good thing. Uh, weather was created as a good thing and remained a good thing until, until man committed the first sin. Then sin changed the atmosphere. Sin changed the weather and weather patterns in the atmosphere. A serious flaw in secular environmentalism is that it sees nature as still good and that man is the problem. Man is the one causing harm to nature. Um, I agree it was the first man in the garden that committed the original sin that caused the most irreparable harm to nature. But God still remains sovereign over those laws of nature. God is sovereign means God is in absolute control. I might add just a footnote here. Uh, I think it's important how we define the fact God is sovereign. Some people believe in what's called, this is, I'm going to lay out a little theology for you here, what is called meticulous determinism. Meticulous determinism means, according to these proponents of this position, that God has caused, caused in a direct sense, all that happens in the universe. Meaning there's not even a rogue molecule. God orchestrates and causes all to happen that happens. I can't accept that because that means that God then is the author of or the cause of sin. And so that is a problem for me. I believe the fact God is sovereign means everything that happens in the universe, all that happens, God is either caused in a direct sense or God is permitted to happen in an indirect sense. But in either case, God is in absolute control of all that there is. So God is in charge of nature and weather. That's contrary to ancient cultures. In ancient Greek and Roman societies, it was a pagan god or goddess that was responsible for rain, storms, snow, hurricanes, and on and on. The truth is that it is Yahweh. It is God himself that is responsible for all weather conditions. Now, those of us that are homeowners... We have homeowner insurance policies, and those policies probably include language such as an act of God. An act of God is wording used to describe a natural disaster where there was little to nothing a homeowner could do 
to have prevented the damage from that disaster. Acts of God include earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, and severe flooding. Most of these so-called acts of God are covered under standard homeowner's insurance policies, but some could require uh, a separate insurance rider added to the standard policy. I find that language humorous because all weather is an act of God. Sunshine is an act of God. The clear skies, as we have this morning, are an act of God. God created the entire universe, and God created the laws of nature. Original sin has negatively affected those laws, so most natural disasters are just the result of those flawed laws in operation. Hurricanes, typhoons, and tornadoes are the results of divergent weather patterns colliding together. Earthquakes are the result of the Earth's plate structure shifting. Tsunami is the result of underwater earthquakes. Sometimes God just permits flawed nature to do its thing. Nature just acts as nature in a flawed sense, but God is still sovereign over all weather phenomena. Psalm 148 Verse 8 reads, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds, fulfilling his word. Meaning the weather does what God tells it to do. Jonah 1 and verse 4, Jonah had boarded a ship um, to go in the opposite direction of where God instructed him to go. And God needed to get his attention. And so Jonah 1 and verse 4 reads, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. Who sent that wind? God. And there was a mighty tempest on the seas so that the ship was about to be broken up. And soon after that, Jonah was tossed overboard and a fish swallowed him. One example of God being in charge of weather was from ancient Egypt. Remember the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for four centuries. God raised up a man named Moses to free his people. Since during the time of slavery in this nation, uh, Abraham Lincoln became known as the great emancipator. The first great emancipator was actually Moses. He freed his people from bondage in Egypt. As per God's instructions, Moses went to Pharaoh and demanded Pharaoh release his people so that the people could then be free to migrate to the land God had promised them. Historians estimate there were some two to three million Israelites, uh, ancient Hebrew people in Egypt at that time, that needed to relocate per God's instructions. Um, but Pharaoh was stubborn and refused Moses' demand. So God sent a total of 10 plagues, all of them from God, in order to convince Pharaoh to let the ancient Hebrew people go. Pharaoh resisted. Why did he resist? Pharaoh didn't want to lose all that free slave labor. Um, the economy was dependent on that. Human rights meant nothing to Pharaoh. The ancient Egyptians were a polytheistic culture, meaning the people worshipped numerous false gods. It's interesting that in each of those ten plagues that God prescribed, each of them were designed to counter one or more of Egypt's false gods. Each of them were designed to counter those gods and demonstrate to the Egyptians that their false gods were meaningless. Notice the seventh plague. The seventh plague had a connection to the weather. The seventh plague consisted of gigantic hailstones. Exodus 9, starting at verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
after Pharaoh's stubbornness and once more uh, rejecting his demand that the people go, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven. And the Lord sent, who sent? The Lord sent thunder and hail. And fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So that there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Verse 25. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. This is massive devastation. Verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Now that is true confession. Uh, Pharaoh had sinned. The Lord is righteous. Uh, the Egyptian people and Pharaoh were wicked. So that is true, but that was an insincere admission. Verse 28, he said to Moses, Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. Meaning, <laughs> we've had enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Pharaoh said to Moses, You can go. Stop the storm, stop the hail, stop the wind, stop the thunder, and you can go. Well, that was reneged on, and he pulled back from that commitment, as we know. Uh, verse 29, so Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. So why did that unfortunate weather start? Because Moses petitioned God to start it. Why did that unfortunate weather stop? Because Moses petitioned God to stop it, and it did. This particular plague was in direct opposition to Orsysis. Orsysis was a crop fertility god, uh, according to the Egyptians. And this plague was against the storm god called Set. According to verse 23, this hailstorm included fire that darted to the ground. That probably means there were lightning strikes that started massive fires. And we have seen that here. Uh, in the summer, the grasses in the, in, the, in the mountains and hills around our valley are dry and susceptible to fire. And there are what is called uh, dry thunderstorms where there's lightning, but there's no moisture. There's no precipitation. So the lightning strike hits the dry grass and boom, um, it, there's a fire. That's happened often. We're all familiar with that. We were raised, as I said, in Kansas City. So severe hailstorms were not uncommon. As a teenager, because I was a goofy kid, you know, if we were home during one of those hailstorms, I would run. Now, my mother would say, go to the basement, go to the basement. 
Okay, fine. I'll stay there for a minute. I would run outside. I would grab the biggest hailstones I could find, bring them in and put them in the freezer. It drove our mother nuts. I remember collecting some hailstones almost the size of tennis balls. Um, it is said that climate change, uh, and understand climate has always changed, uh, climate change is now altering the pattern of hail storms. Hail damage in the U.S. on an annual basis is now more than $10 billion. And records for the largest hailstones are now being broken. Some hailstones reach 6.2 inches in diameter. A softball is 3.8 inches in diameter. So 6.2 inches is almost twice the size of a softball. That is a large hailstone. The heaviest hailstone ever recorded fell in Bangladesh in 1986 and weighed 2.25 pounds. That hailstorm killed 92 people and injured another 400. Some experts now estimate the largest possible hailstone could be 10.6 inches in diameter. That's a bowling ball-sized hailstone. I can't imagine the damage stones of that size could do. According to Revelation 16, verse 21, during the prophetic tribulation period, God is scheduled to rain down hailstones that are about 100 pounds apiece. I don't plan to be here for that. We don't know the exact size of those hailstones God rained on Egypt. But we do know that verse 24 reads that this hail was, quote, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. So these were historic-sized hailstones. It's possible this hailstorm generated more and larger hailstones than we have ever witnessed on earth. And we can see that from verse 25 where it reads that this hailstorm devastated all the farmland and wiped out all the crops in the fields. Before I go on, I need to address a misunderstanding some people have. Some people have the impression that Satan is in charge of the weather. If it's bad weather, it's from him. Uh, some people have the impression that Satan can influence the weather. One, Satan is not in charge of the weather. God is in charge of the weather. It is true, though, Satan can affect the weather patterns, but only, only if God permits him to do that. Satan can do nothing that God doesn't permit him to do. An example of that is Job 1. Job 1, this is probably familiar to most people. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, these are angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So God said to Satan, uh, you've been, you know, uh, prowling around on the earth and 
observing people. Have you, have you checked out my man Job? Job's amazing. There's none like him. Uh, he fears me. He shuns evil. And Satan responded in verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Uh, Job, uh, Satan responded, Well, doesn't Job have a good reason to fear you? Doesn't Job have a good reason to worship you? That's almost a rhetorical question. Basically, Satan said, the reason Job worships you and fears you is because you have been so good to him. Notice, notice verse 10. Have you not made a hedge around him? A protective hedge. Around his household and around all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So basically, Satan said, sure, he respects you, he honors you, he fears you, he worships you, he serves you, because look at all the stuff you have done for him. That's why, that's his motivation. He's not sincere. Verse 11, Satan continued, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. He said, okay, God, let's test this. Take away everything. Take it all out. And I guarantee he's going to curse you. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, okay, we'll check it out. Behold, all that he has is in your power. All that he has, meaning you have control over. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So God gave Satan permission. Notice, permission to annihilate all that Job had. His children, his servants, um, his shepherds, his herdsmen, his livestock, and on and on. God gave Satan permission to take it all. And notice Satan used weather to do some of that. Verse 16, and while he, this is a messenger from verse 15 that came to Job to tell him of what had happened, while he, this messenger, was still speaking to Job, another, meaning another messenger, also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Um, that fire from heaven could have been a phenomena we now call a fire whirl or fire devil, sometimes called a fire tornado. Uh, this is an unusual phenomena. Uh, uh, this phenomena sometimes has a tornado-like vortex, as this one does, that contains fire, smoke, and ash, and will suck in debris and combustible gases. So that's what it could have been that completely wiped out his herds of sheep and the servants that tended to them. Verse 18, while he was still speaking, another, meaning another messenger, also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Verse 19. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. This was probably an F5 tornado that ripped Job's oldest son's house apart and killed both him and all his siblings. There were 10 children altogether, all of them dead in that tornado. The point is, 
that God permitted Satan to use weather, inclement weather, violent, catastrophic weather to cause death and destruction. But if God hadn't given Satan permission to do that, it couldn't have happened. Because God is sovereign. Number two, God sometimes uses the weather as both a means of judgment and a means of blessing. God can use weather to judge, to punish sin and sinners. God can use weather to bless someone. The first and most comprehensive example, and this should be a no-brainer, of weather acting as divine judgment was the Genesis flood described in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. The Genesis flood was a massive global deluge rainstorm that itself lasted 40 days. And then during that same time, water sources also erupted from inside the earth. And remember this water vapor canopy surrounding the earth also collapsed. So that added to the precipitation. So water is coming from underneath, water is coming from above, and as a result, the entire human population drowned, except for eight people consisting of Noah and his household who were safe inside the ark. And one more time, I don't get paid for these advertisements, but put the ark on your bucket list. You need to see it before heaven. Because of the extremely long lifespans before the flood, it's possible there were billions not millions, billions of people alive at the time of the Noahic flood. In addition to human loss, all air-breathing, land-dwelling animals also drowned in that flood. And why did God use catastrophic weather such as the flood to punish man? Genesis 6 verse 5 gives the reason, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Yeah, God, this, is, this describes the spiritual condition of man prior to the flood, and that condition gave God the impetus to send the flood. Someone said, that sounds similar to the spiritual condition of modern man now. That's because it is. Throughout Scripture, God did sometimes use catastrophic weather to punish sin. And He still does that. But we need to be careful about attributing unfortunate weather to divine judgment on sin because as mere humans, we cannot be certain of that. We cannot be certain of what it, God's intent is in either causing or permitting uh, unfortunate weather. Uh, this past month, to the state, the state to the left, immediate left of us, which I don't even like to name, uh, experienced unusual rainfall and massive, massive flooding. It is estimated that state received, get this, 32 trillion tons of rain and snowfall, resulting in serious devastation across the state. And innocent people were affected. Um, now someone suggested that this recent violent weather could be divine judgment on a godless, immoral state that has literally lost its mind. And that last phrase is a, probably an understatement. 
Uh, it could be. It could be this unseasonable, uh, uh, unfortunate weather that California has experienced could be judgment on California's sin. It could be divine judgment from heaven, but because of our limited, finite humanness, it's difficult for us to be dogmatic about that. I mean, we can ask God when we see him, but we don't know for certain. There could be other contributing factors to that, that weather. Cotton Mather, or Mather, was a famous Puritan preacher. He said that violent storms are the are divine responses to particular sinful acts. And he was dogmatic about that. If there's a violent storm, it's because God is reacting uh, in judgment to a particular sinful act or sinful acts of a particular people or group of people. And, and we would agree sometimes that is true, but probably not most times. Um, he argued that inclement weather is a response from heaven on someone's particular sin. That's how he would see it. But during one of Mather's sermons, a breathless messenger rushed inside the sanctuary during the service, interrupted the sermon, and announced that lightning had just struck and severely damaged the preacher's house. It was interesting. Mather suddenly altered his theological perspective some on this subject and reassured the, con reassured the congregation that the lightning striking his house was just God's reminder not to become too attached to our possessions. He made no mention of retribution or punishment from God. That was convenient. An example of God using weather to be an asset and a blessing is from Joshua 10, verse, verses 9 through 11. Uh, a coalition of armies from five foreign godless cities invaded a city called Gibeon. Gibeon had earlier made a peace agreement with Joshua. Remember Joshua was now in charge of Israel's armies and Gibeon uh, not wanting Israel to be a threat to them had made a peace agreement with Joshua and Israel. Um, and, and that was great. So these foreign entities invaded Gibeon. And after this invasion, Joshua and his men felt it was appropriate to go up and support Gibeon in defending itself. Verse 9, Joshua came up on them, meaning he came upon this coalition of armies. Suddenly, he came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. Verse 10, so the Lord routed them before Israel. He scattered them, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes down to Beth Horon, and struck them down as far as Azekai and Makeda. Verse 11, and it happened as they fled, meaning as those armies, those invaders and fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon, meaning as those armies are descending down the mountains, that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as uh, Azekah, and they died. Notice, there were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. That's amazing. I mean, 
the biggest weapon wasn't, you know, the weapons that the children of Israel used against their enemies, but were the hailstones God sent from heaven. Massive death and devastation. God used weather to be an asset and a blessing to Joshua and his men during that battle. A modern example of God using weather to be a blessing during war occurred in June 1940. 400,000 Allied forces, 400,000 Allied forces consisting primarily of British and French soldiers were trapped on the north coast of France at a port called Dunkirk. Probably most people have heard of Dunkirk. The Nazi forces were positioned just 10 miles from them. And those Nazis could have easily cornered those Allied troops. But that didn't happen. That didn't happen because at that time, there was thick fog and low-hanging clouds that had settled over the beaches. And the Nazis understood it wasn't possible to conduct a successful assault under those weather conditions. And at the same time, the English Channel also became unusually calm. So the Allied forces used these weather conditions as an opportunity to escape a potential disaster. The Allied forces used that unusual weather pattern to send small boats to ferry soldiers from Dunkirk, from those Allied troops, across the channel to a safer non-combat location. That protective weather pattern lasted for nine consecutive days, permitting them to evacuate everyone. Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill called that evacuation of Dunkirk a miracle of deliverance. The problem is, and that was a blessing, and it remains a blessing to us, because we aren't forced to survive under the domination of a Nazi regime. The problem is we sometimes see weather from just a human perspective and not from a divine perspective. If we do that, and I'm speaking for me, if we do that, then we tend to blow the unfortunate weather completely out of proportion. As an example, I don't care for shoveling snow. I just don't. I did that as a child, as a teenager. I had enough. Um, you know, all these women that I talked to, oh, the snow is so beautiful. I go, how much did you shovel? <laughs> no, your husband did. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, it's beautiful after it's finished snowing and the sun is out like this afternoon and it's beautiful, fine. But the process of getting here is not fun. And I don't care to shovel snow. I didn't move here to shovel snow. And there's more snow in the forecast. I've been told by people who have been here a lifetime that it has snowed every month of the calendar year in this valley. Now, that's just crazy. That's crazy. So I'm so tired of snow that I tend to exaggerate the negative content of this snow problem. I focus on the negative, you know, I don't want to drive in it, I don't want to shovel it, uh, and I tend to de-emphasize and ignore the positive possibilities of this weather situation. In this case, the snow is resolving the potential drought problem. 
I mean, we all agree that our region has suffered through drought, times of drought recently, and has needed moisture, and the snow has brought us that moisture. And that's a good thing. So God is using the weather, even though we complain, I do, about the snow. He's using it for our ultimate good, and we need to remember that. Number three, God wants us to trust Him in times of difficult and inclement weather. God wants us to trust Him if the weather is less than ideal. The word trust means to count on, to depend on, to put confidence in, to exercise faith in. We are to trust God. Our relation to the weather reveals the degree of our personal trust in God. One more time. Our relation to the weather and our attitude about the weather reveals the degree of our personal trust in God. It's appropriate to be concerned enough about the weather to check the weather forecast. We all do that. Some of us multiple times per day, as we said. At the same time, in checking the forecast, understanding that weather forecasters are often mistaken and never lose their jobs. Um, but some people obsess about weather. And weather mania can be indicative, probably subconscious, but weather mania can be indicative of our want to control things. We want to be in complete charge of the immediate future. Instead, God wants us to trust Him in times of limited weather. Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You, meaning God, will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. We, we need to be careful about trusting man and ignoring God. Verse 6, for that person that does, he shall be like a shrub. Some translations read a stunted shrub. Since this is in Nevada, it could be a small tumbleweed. He shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see good when good comes, but shall inherit the parched places in the wilderness, barren wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is is the Lord. Now this next verse is interesting because it comments on the result of trusting in God. It's most interesting because it, it, it uses unique figurative language to describe what happens to that person that trusts God. There is a connection to weather in this verse. Notice verse 8. For he, meaning the man that trusts in the Lord, shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by weather by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. When heat comes means a severe heat wave. Um, he's a tree, a symbolic tree, a figurative tree, uh, and it, it, its roots are by the river, and so the nourishment is constant, and so he's not worried if there's a, a, a severe heat wave. It doesn't affect him, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought. A drought result, results from an extended period of no rainfall. 
but it, he's not affected, nor will cease from yielding fruit. So he's a productive tree. Because of his trust in God, he's depicted as a productive tree in all weather conditions, no matter how adverse those conditions are. God blesses the person that trusts in him. Remember we said earlier how Satan used violent weather after he received permission from God to do it, used violent weather to bring absolute ruin to Job. Job was the richest man in the East. He was the Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos of his generation. And then he lost literally everything. He lost it all. The one thing he had left was Mrs. Job. And she wasn't an asset. But Job trusted God throughout this entire ordeal that he endured. And after this massive loss, he made this confession in Job 1, starting at verse 20. Then Job arose. He's heard all of these announcements of the devastation and the loss he has suffered. Job arose. He got up from the ground, tore his robe ripped it in shreds, and shaved his head. Why did he do that? Those were signs and symbols of grief and much remorse and sadness. He shaved his head and he fell to the ground in worship, meaning his first response to this loss was to worship God. That is amazing. Verse 21, and this is familiar. And he, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. We just sang about that. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. An amazing attitude this man manifested. Job lost so much, but notice Job didn't accuse God of doing something wrong in permitting Satan to wreak havoc on him. Job didn't curse God. Job wasn't mad at God. Job didn't blame God. Job wasn't bitter at God. Job didn't scream at God. Job didn't announce, God, I'm done with you. No, that didn't happen. Instead, Job was content, understanding that since God has created all things, it is his prerogative to give us things, and it is his prerogative to take away those things. And so he said, in summation, Blessed be the name of the Lord. But trusting God in a crisis, trusting God through inclements and violent weather is easier said than done. I'm going to share something I've never shared before. Robert Rogers, his wife Melissa, and their four children, two girls, two boys, the Rogers were in their minivan driving home from a wedding when a flash flood swept away the van. It was on a dark night during a severe, severe rainstorm on the Kansas Turnpike, and I've been on that turnpike. The Rogers were driving from Wichita, Kansas to the Kansas City suburb just miles from where we were raised. It's a suburb called Liberty, Missouri the site of the first daylight bank robbery in the history of the United States. The Jesse James gang robbed that bank. 
Uh, the Rogers minivan and seven other cars found themselves in the middle of a virtual river that had formed across that freeway. The water spanned more than a thousand feet across. The minivan's engine had stalled. The water was above the bumpers. So it was unable to move. And the water started coming into the van. It would have been suicide for them to exit the van at that point as the water was rushing across the freeway at 32,000 gallons per second. Robert and Melissa were devout Christians, and I should emphasize devout. Both of them started to pray aloud, simple prayers, Jesus, save us, please save us. And then all of them, including the children, all of them, because the family had memorized scripture together, all of them quoted from Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. During this time, Robert actually felt that the rain would slow and the water would start to recede. But that didn't happen. Instead, the rain increased in intensity. and The water pushed the van up against a concrete median. Rain was pelting the van so hard it seemed and sounded like large balls of hail. And then after 15 minutes or so, the rushing water literally picked up the van in addition to 11 concrete medians weighing some 10,000 pounds apiece, picked them all up and sent them together down this river. At that point, Robert felt like the only chance to survive was to get everyone out of the van. So he kicked out a window. But the moment he did, the water, force from the water, sucked himself, Melissa, and their oldest daughter out of the van in an instant. And the other children were left behind. None of them had anticipated that would happen. Robert found himself literally drowning in pitch black, muddy water. One half mile from the freeway where the van was, Robert's head broke through the surface of the water. He was choking. He was gulping water. He could see some trees and land, but the current was so strong and he was exhausted. Robert confessed, I don't know how I got to the land. I, I have no idea. It was a miracle. God got me there. I literally crawled out of the water on my hands and knees, but I couldn't see or hear Melissa or the children. I called for them, but I heard nothing. He stumbled toward the emergency vehicle lights. The first responders standing there were shocked to see him emerge from the water, shocked to see that he had survived that flood. Robert then told them that his wife and children were still out there in the water. And so rescue crews tried to find them. Robert was brought to the hospital where he would be for a couple days. Hours later, after arriving at the hospital in the middle of the night, he received word that his three youngest children had been found Drowned, still inside the totally destroyed, and I've seen pictures, totally destroyed upside down van, one and a half miles from where their van had been on that intersection. And then his oldest daughter was found the next morning. Her, her dead body was found pinned to a barbed wire fence. 
And then after two more days of searching, Melissa's body was found in a retention pond more than two miles from the interstate where that had occurred. There were no goodbyes. There were no last kisses. Robert Rogers had lost his college sweetheart and his four adorable children. My sister knew the Rogers, not as acquaintances, but as friends. She taught piano lessons to Melissa and the two oldest children. She had been in their home countless times. She says the Rogers were extraordinarily close to one another. She said Robert was an amazing father and Melissa was an extraordinary mother. He said this was a, she said this was a Christian home and no one would dare question that. Their commitment to Christ was, was unequaled. More than a thousand people attended the funeral service. My sister was one of them. She sat there for more than two hours in front of five caskets. One service, five caskets. A mother and four children. There are people in this room that have suffered unbelievable loss. People that when I see them, my heart breaks for them because I sense what they might be feeling or thinking on the inside. They have suffered unspeakable loss. But it's doubtful there is a person here that has suffered loss to that extent. Robert Rogers has been interviewed on Good Morning America, CNN, Focus on the Family, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And he shared his story in person with our church in California before we left. We had a special Sunday. We announced he was coming. The place was packed, both services. And he shared this in more detail. Robert has returned to the site of that flood, which now lies tranquil. There's no evidence that there had ever been a flood there. He said, quote, I'm still a dad. If we believe what we say we believe, then my family isn't dead. They're alive and well and happy with Jesus. I'm totally at peace with them being there. I've surrendered everything that was most precious to me. It's still a daily surrender. And I still cry every day in those moments when I am alone. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that God allowed this to happen for a person. God wasn't asleep that night. He could have caused us to be two minutes earlier or later, and things could have been much different. We had prayed every day for our family's protection and safety. I guess I have every reason to be bitter. We were doing our best, doing everything right, and putting God first. The biblical character Job chose not to sin when he lost his ten children. I learned to die to myself. And now it's a story of hope to say that God is real. And if we trust him, if we trust him, he will use whatever the circumstances are for our good. I had opportunity to speak to Robert extensively during his visit. I remember picking him up at the airport. I remember him bringing him back to Amtrak. He was going actually on into the Bay Area to another appointment. And, and we talked, and uh, he had a smile on his face most all the time he was there. He seemed positive. He was optimistic. He was still single. He was still alone. 
His commitment to Christ was contagious. And his encouraging attitude made me ashamed of mine. This man had lost his soulmate and his four children. And he continued to emphasize through our time together that he had no regrets. He had none. He had adopted Job's attitude. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. And he understood that better than most will ever understand that. And he said, but blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Robert is now ministering across this nation, speaking to churches and other civic groups. He has started an orphanage, and he is now remarried. And he now has four small children, two girls and two boys. Because as he told me, no matter what, God is still good. Let's bow our heads. Father, we can't pretend to understand you. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are above our ways. We have to trust you. Sure, it's easy to trust you when everybody is doing fine. The job's good. Everyone's healthy. Uh, Everything's rolling along. That's easy. But when weather comes, physical, literal weather or figurative weather comes and things don't look so good, that's when it's difficult to trust you. But God, help us to do that. Robert Rogers is an example of someone who trusted you explicitly. Through that storm, through that flood, and especially in the days after. And you've blessed him and cared for him and used his story to minister to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I'm grateful I had the opportunity to, to get to know him and to speak to him. Father, I just pray we'll learn from this because there will be storms, literal storms, and there'll be figurative storms that we all will face. And even if we don't understand, we don't understand, help us to know that you are God. You're too kind to ever be cruel. And you're too wise to ever make a mistake. And help us to trust you through whatever crisis we find ourselves in. Help us to do that. And I pray and I thank you in the special name of your son Jesus. Amen. Amen.